Hello, my name is Lara Campbell. I'm an abolitionist vegan from British Columbia, Canada. You can find me on Facebook and you're listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, well. Let's get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, your favourite animal rights podcast from Invercargill, New Zealand. Mainly because it's the only one, at least that I'm aware of. Elizabeth Collins of NZ Vegan Podcast has put out not one, but two recent episodes. Likewise, here's not one, but two clips from her latest work. Another thing, really, really great thing that happened today, which I thought was really telling and really related to the experience I had at work, was I met three vegans today. You met three whole vegans in a single day, Elizabeth? Hell, I've only met three vegans in my whole life. The crew from The Daily English Show, thedailyenglishshow.com, and one other in Invercargill. I'm not sure which three vegans in a day is A. 100% of your daily requirement or B. A lifetime's exposure, violently packed into just a few hours. I guess we'll soon see, if Elizabeth doesn't lose her hair from radiation sickness, but instead continues life, happy, healthy and promoting veganism. That will be the test of time. When she walked past, she stopped. She's like, oh, it's so great to see this. You just don't see this in this country at all. You just don't see... um any of this kind of thing, and um, I was like, no, you, but we, but you will, you know, but you will, and um, and I also acknowledge that we are a huge producer, like our main industry is animal products. I mean, that definitely changes the paradigm here, you know, definitely. That is a, you know, it's a difference. Our main source of income is a nation. I believe we, according to the New Zealand Dairy. Um, uh, industry. We support a third of the world's dairy. Okay, so 6.7 billion people in New Zealand provides a third of the dairy products for that population. That just lets you know, it's, you know, this is a very rich country. I guess we're going to need other industries to take up slack. You know, once the world goes vegan overnight. Never fear, the precious will soon be here. Once part one of The Hobbit drops, we'll once again rule the world, in terms of two hour long audio-visual experiences, three hours for the extended version, bye bye Bollywood, and as for Hollywood, well, let's just say the American public will once again be asking Obama, What has it got in its pocketses? He heard the hiss loud behind him, and the splash as Gollum leapt from his boat. Hopefully he can find another good old-fashioned American bailout. Hollywood's gonna need it. What does this paper tiger of a superpower have to compete with this glorious island nation in the South Pacific? Avatar 2? Now of 25% extra naked blue giants? Come on, it'll be like eagles against foul beasts at the end of Return of the King. Hey, there's a good debate. Return of the King versus Return of the Jedi. I vote Lord of the Rings. Or... Like Gandalf vs. the Balrog. You don't fight fire with fire. You only need a little water. And our whole country is surrounded by the damn stuff. No landlocked desert states here. 
Our country runs on the stuff too. The vast majority of our power is renewable, often hydropower. Water versus America's lovely coal and nuclear. Fire and explosions. Sounds marvellous. We know which one wins. Fire versus water. Avatar 2 versus The Hobbit Part 1. I'd like to talk about different forms of violence this episode. Quote, It's not only police looking for those responsible for a heist from the Wright's Bush Rugby Club Rooms. Some pint-sized club rugby players are keen for some vengeance of their own. A box full of 50 Moro bars and a tray of 48 cans of Coca-Cola branded soft drinks were taken some time between junior rugby practices at the ground off State Highway 99, leaving the players without their traditional post-practice and post-match chocolate bar and drink. Chili Gold, 7, gave a strong reaction, 7, gave a strong reaction to the news that the last night's practice would not end the way it usually did. I'm mad, he said. I want to kill them. Thomas Beck, 5, was more moderate. It's not good. Blaine Beck, 5, was direct. Put them back. My first thought was, huh, when I played rugby, we only had cut-up oranges, a thin wedge each, and that was in the rare occasions when Coach remembered to bring them along. Fifty non-vegan chocolate bars and 48 cans of Coke stolen. That's what they get after practice? After the game? For energy? What have we come to? Oh, and there's that little issue of a seven-year-old exclaiming how he was mad, quote, I want to kill them. A friggin' seven-year-old. What the hell is going on with this bloody world? Everything is so insanely crazy. It's all wrecked, ruined, and it's the Democrats' fault. No, it's the Republicans' fault. Where in the hell are the young children getting such violent, exaggerated expressions from? We should be setting an example of being nice to one another. At the age of seven, they should be watching Mr. Rogers' clips from YouTube and listening to Rogers' podcast. Um, Mr. Rogers on YouTube. It wasn't shown in New Zealand. They should be fed a strict diet of chicken friends. Uh, that doesn't sound so good, actually. I'm pissed off. Where are they getting these bloody horrible expressions of dramatic violence from? It's that damn television. That's what's to blame. A little like single-issue campaigns that demonize certain practices, especially those which are not common in your area. This clip is from the latest Abolitionist Approach episode. liked the single-issue campaign because single-issue campaigns have the virtue of not really asking anybody to change their life too terribly much. And, and so, you know, uh, people can feel that they're supporting the cause and they're being animal ad advocates by contributing to some campaign that is focused on the seals in, you know, Canada or, or focused on, you know, some, some other use which many, of, many members of the public may not even engage in. Um, and so it, it really doesn't require that they change their, their life too terribly much and they can still feel good. They can feel good that they're supporting an animal cause and by giving a donation for these single-issue campaigns. And single-issue campaigns are intended to be just that, single-issue campaigns, and not to get the public to focus on the general issue, which might cause uh, them to uh, you know, really have to sort of rethink their relationship to non-human animals. Oh, Canada. Because only Canadians have ever killed seals. Certainly, my own country, New Zealand, was never settled slash invaded by white sealers. 
those who killed seals, the ancient ancestors of 2011-era New Zealand, with their iPhones and iPads, right? And those awful Japanese, because the actions of one small group accurately reflect an entire country of over 120 million citizens, right? Of course they do. Certainly, New Zealand was never settled slash invaded by white whalers, those who killed whales, the Dark Ages equivalent of 2011 model New Zealanders, with their The Hobbit movies and YouTubes? No, there's only one thing for it. Blame those people at the other side of the world, who look and sound different to us. Blame Canada. Oh my god, they killed Kenny! have changed, our kids are getting worse, they won't obey their parents, they just wanna fart and curse. Should we blame the government, or blame society, or should we blame the images on TV? Now, blame Canada, blame Canada, it seems that everything's gone wrong, said Canada came along. Blame Canada, blame Canada, we need to form a full assault. Don't blame yourself. For your son Stan, he saw the darn cartoon and now he's off to join the clan. And my boy Eric once had my picture on his shelf, but now when he sees me, he tells me to myself. Blame Canada, blame Canada, because when Canada is gone, there'll be no more Celine Dion. Blame Canada, blame Canada. They're not even a real country anyway. Now of course we shouldn't blame Canadians, we should look at our own actions. Like the last lines of Blame Canada from the South Park movie, or, as just played, sung by Robin Williams, we must blame them before someone thinks of blaming us. Clear, non-violent and fun vegan education, the promotion of veganism helps. We have to remember, not everyone has been exposed to on-human, non-human relations, veganaceous or the Invercargill Vegan Society. Yet. There once was a time when we all lived without such information. If anything. He listened to her question carefully and respectfully. Her daddy, she said, had told her that if you had a really hard question, you had to go to the library to find the answer. Because at the library, they knew the answers to almost all the questions. From the Stephen King book Firestarter. Ha! Huh. Remember when people had to go to a physical location and use some crappy decimal system invented by either Yui, Jui, or Louie and find that dusty old book on some shelf and how you couldn't possibly have even a fraction of the information available to any five-year-old now in 2011? Compare your local library to your daily internet use. How can it compete? Again, like fire against water, those few crappy movies from America versus the mighty New Zealand film industry. Although, I think even this socialist nation has moved away from actual film to digital. You know, that little company, Weta Digital, who, by the way, worked on visual effects for Avatar too. I'm sure we sabotage every non-Zealand movie we get paid to work on. Now that the information is out there, beaming through fiber optic cables from hard drive to hard drive, out there on the streets with a friendly pamphlet, or even being horribly misrepresented on mainstream television. Damn that, the veganist. 
we're getting the word out. One of the pitfalls of this democracy that you're all so fond of, you have to put up with radical, weirdo, fringe views. Not mainstream society, like vegans, but of white supremacists calling themselves the right-wing resistance. The uniformly pasty, pale white guys wearing black, because we all know that looks so good against ultralight skin, right? Well, I do. I love wearing black clothing. I'm glad we all agree. It looks great when you have pale skin. Check out this clip with the leader, Kyle Chapman. No, not the guy who killed John Lennon. That was Mark David Chapman. Kyle Chapman pops up every few years with another crackpot racist group. None of them ever have any real numbers in them. They all fizzle out. But damned if they're not horribly offensive while they exist. Escape communism. Look, Kyle Chapman, can I put it to you? Talk about we. How big is this group? Oh, we don't talk about numbers because to us that's relevant. As long as we've got two or three people to do flies in one town, that's all we need. We but, don't care. But, you know, it's about putting our message out and finding other people. But our long-term goal is to do protests, and we need people for that. So that's what we're doing, but is finding is, other but people it is to relevant. protest with us. If, if, it is relevant. If you say, look, we have a view we want to represent in the political spectrum here in this country, if it's two of you... Well, you're wasting everyone's time, aren't you? I mean, what, why are you so shy about saying well, what numbers you've got? You what, it's way more than two of us. Well, how and many our numbers grow constantly? Well, it's even impossible to count right now because we've been doing these fly drops now for about three months, and we've been getting a lot of recruits for, through these things. It's about 50-50 in my email box of people that support and people that are anti. And you know, the, the, and out of those people that support, and you know, there, there, there might be one out of ten that wants to join us, and that's great. That's great for us. That's exactly what we want. This is the most successful campaign we've ever done. Your Facebook has four, your Facebook page has 42 members. No, that's that's a um, that's just an online thing. I mean, this is this shows how um, silly the researchers are. You know, some some stupid Facebook page is just um, you know a, a something that somebody set up for us to be able to go in and talk to other people. In that Facebook page, there's representatives from other groups in other countries as well. Our own members, the vast vast majority of our own members, don't have the internet access. Okay, do you Most know how many members there areas. are of the right wing resistance? You do you do you know how many members there are? I know how many actual signed up members there are. And but how many is our that? Our organisation is not just about signed up members. We have female supporters, we have youth supporters, we have, um, we have financial contributors. All those people are part of the greater organisation, but our actual um, core elite membership is, you know, is, is, a, is, a, is what we consider to be a guarded um, tactical um, issue. Catch that? Many of his members, there's more than one of them, and Chapman finds it impossible to count. <laughs> because who would ever run an organisation with one member hiding behind a big name and title and epaulets on his uniform, right? Well, these members who apparently can't be counted, it's relevant, we are told. Although there are the answer to all questions, 42 of them on Facebook, quote, the vast majority of our own members don't have the internet access. Good heavens. I'd better get out there, on the streets then, with peaceful, non-violent vegan information. They'd been handing out flyers in predominantly Asian areas of cities about the Asian invasion, supposedly trying to gather more members, you know, more than the founder and two of his racist mates. And that's not on. Many of my very best friends are Asian. I'm used to names like Whittier, Vadi and Awati. And my first reaction to seeing Chapman on television again, with all their black clothes and right-wing resistance names, images of white fists clenched in opposition? Well, since you like pale white fists so much, here, have both of mine, in the blinking face, one for each syllable, Widdiya, 
by Diyanuwati. And what would that accomplish if I went around and beat up some pale white people who dress in black, these ones who are racist? More violence in the world. Attention is what these little groups want. Some guy out there trying to promote some social agenda with a big fancy group supposedly behind him. Let's not be stupid. Let's not use fire on fire. That doesn't get rid of fire. It promotes it. It spreads it. It gives the fire fans or fans the fire. Either way, you use water. When America goes, Avatar 2, I choose you, you have to... Wing out the gimp. Leave the gimp sleeping. Well, I guess you just have to go wake him up now, won't you? No, 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 that's an American movie anyway. Yuck. You instead bring out The Hobbit, part one. Not some American rehashing of Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves, with giant Smurfs in the lead role. Oh, we have to save the trees, spirituality of native peoples. Bugger that. It's all about short hairy guys trying to steal jewellery from a fire-breathing dragon. Yeah, that's the New Zealand way. Surprisingly more violent than the American, for the first and last time ever. And these groups that try inciting violence, what can they do to us? Left unchecked, they can terrorise their targets. By talking about these issues, defending others, we can hopefully quench their racist hate. Until the supposed mass uprising of every racist redneck in New Zealand, a fraction of our 4 million population rising up against the 2 plus billion people of Asia. Forget about it. They have small acts of bullying and upsetting pamphlets. It's like someone being called chicken. If you react badly to it and do what they dared you to, it generally ends up badly, especially if you're being taunted by groundskeeper Willie's talking tractor. Ride me. I better not. He's insulting both of us. Let's go. I've never understood that term, too chicken to do something. Yes, chickens are soft, gentle animals, whose abilities to raise their young are second to none. But, have the people who say, you're too chicken, ever seen a mother hen? Or worse, heard her? They make a gargling screech, straight from the bowels of hell. It's times like that you can't help but notice dinosaurs and chickens and dragons called smog. They're all related. That is, unless you're religious and think fossils are God's way of leaving false clues, testing our faith or something. And a male chicken? A rooster. Yeah, because they're not known for their fighting ability or anything. Nope. And certainly, they're not also protective of their families. I've been listening to an audiobook version of The Hobbit while I work. I'd like to share another clip. Eight hobbits can move quietly in woods, absolutely quietly. They take a pride in it and Bilbo had sniffed more than once at what he called all this dwarvish racket as they went along, though I don't suppose you or I would notice anything at all on a windy night, not if the whole cavalcade had passed two feet off. As for Bilbo walking primly towards the red light, I don't suppose even a weasel would have stirred a whisker at it. So, naturally, he got right up to the fire 
for fire it was, without disturbing anyone. And this is what he saw. Ran up the stairs up to the top floor, opened up a door there, guess who he saw? Dave the dope be shooting dope, who don't know the meaning of water nor soap, he said. I need bullets, hurry up, run. The dope fiend brought back a spanking shotgun. He went outside, but there was cops all over, then he dipped into a car, a stolen over. Raced up the block doing 83, crashing to a tree near university. Wait, that's not what he saw at all. Although, if I lived in America, Burma or Liberia, you know those three grand countries on imperial measurements, I'd drive at 88 miles per hour all the time, in a small silver hatchback. This sounds more like it. And this is what he saw. Three very large persons sitting round a very large fire of beech logs. They were toasting mutton on long spits of wood and licking the gravy off their fingers. There was a fine, toothsome smell. Also, there was a barrel of good drink at hand, and they were drinking out of jugs. But they were trolls. Obviously trolls. Even Bilbo, in spite of his sheltered life, could see that. From the great, heavy faces of them, and their size, and the shape of their legs, not to mention their language, which was not drawing-room fashion at all at all. Mutton yesterday, mutton today, and blimey, if it don't look like mutton again tomorrow, said one of the trolls. Never a blinking bit of man flesh if we had for long enough, said a second. What the hell William was a-thinking of to bring us into these parts and all beats me, and the drink running short what's more, he said, jogging the elbow of William, who was taking a pull at his jug. Mouth, he said as soon as he could, you can't expect folk to stop here forever just to be hit by you and Bert. You've had a village and a half between you since we come down from the mountains. How much more do you want? I find the use of non-human talking races in fiction interesting. Those who consider, perhaps rightfully, human beings to made of meat are muscle as flesh, no different than any other animal, after all. And how we apparently to see these creatures as somehow evil for wanting to kill us for their food. But, but, what of the food chain? Surely, we're at the top of this chain, right? And then, right at the top, apparently, a steel cable takes over, and right above this, the food chain, is the steel cable of consumption, with trolls above human beings. But it's natural for trolls to kill humans. I'd like to talk about this killing of Osama bin Laden, and how we in the Western world have reacted to the news. I've grown up during and after 9-11. I cannot possibly compare its effects on myself, at the time a teenager at the end of the world, to those who were there at the site, who were killed, whose families were killed. I have a friend who was in the city at the time. She refuses to watch the video of what happened. She's never seen the full video. So I can't complain compared to others who were truly, directly affected by that act of terrorism. But I remember it in my own ways, through pop culture, through daily occurrences. In New Zealand, it would have been the next day, 
we would have said the 11th of the 9th, t 2001. 11 slash 9 slash 2001, not 9-11. And it would have been the 12th here in New Zealand. But I often look at the time and see 11 minutes past 9, and I still think of everything that's happened since that event. I think of the wars in the Middle East, of my American friends who have to deal with metal detectors everywhere, X-ray scanners, not being allowed to take more than an eyedropper of moisture on board a plane. I hear they put you through a dehydrator prior to boarding. Of how they are patted down, Guantanamo Bay, the sexual perversion of Abu Ghraib prison, of people posing as they did things to dead bodies, hurt, naked, blindfolded men, electrocuted them, dragged them about by a leash. Of how waterboarding was now enhanced interrogation, the Patriot Act, where your electronic conversations are monitored and recorded, of people living in fear of future terrorism. We don't have anything like that here in New Zealand. I think of the innocent people who have been killed, the videos that have been smuggled out of war atrocities, of friendly fire accidents, of landmines, IEDs, anthrax, and the general anti-Middle East theme to popular culture. I've grown up with video games, where you're one of two sides, America vs. the Middle East, supposed good guys and the bad guys, where the American forces have superior weapons and equipment, and the Middle East forces are portrayed as impoverished people who speak a funny language, with Soviet weapons, you know, the previous evil countries we demonised. I have friends in the New Zealand army, and my country has soldiers stationed in the Middle East. Many tens of thousands have died in these wars, and they all began with 9-11. Each day I walk past a local dairy processing facility. It sickens me to think of what goes on inside, of what the tanker trucks bring each day. Sometimes they dump the contents into the city gutters, and I'll be walking past the congealing white, yellow goop. It smells disgusting. The factory has two long parallel chimneys, and often I think of the planes hitting the Twin Towers when I see them. It all makes me very, very sad. I remember how these wars were portrayed in our media and in international news. Initially, the good guys were to be greeted as liberators, remember that? Spreading democracy, stopping violence? It was year after year of horrible failure, and that's based on what we know, with photos of our soldiers' coffins being censored, along with who knows what else. All that money, all those lives, and for what? To go to the other side of the world, shoot and kill, and to be shot and killed. It was awful, awful. And now we're told, hey, don't worry, we got the bad guy. It's not Vietnam 2.0. We won. Woo! It makes me feel physically sick. There's a revolting humour to the idea Bin Laden wasn't shot, that the US forces can just say, oh yeah, we actually won this invasion we started, yeah, we shot him through the eye, can't show you any proof, too gory for you, you know, but don't worry, we threw his body into the ocean, so you don't have to bother with evidence. Here are some clips from the last 60 Minutes show, with President Obama talking of this victory. Remember, this is a man who promised to leave all these wars, to shut down the awful prisons and to stop this violence. He got a Nobel Peace Prize. Whether we like it or not, Osama bin Laden changed America. With that September morning in 2001, he introduced fear and ingrained the threat of terrorism into the daily lives of anyone who lives in a big city, travels by air, or enters a federal building. Like it or not, who the hell likes it? It was a moment of great pride for me uh, to see 
our capacity as a nation uh, to execute something this difficult uh, this well. Pride? And using the word execute, too. Yeah, a man was killed, shot through his eye, apparently, with the photos too awful to show the public. I understand that uh, this will result in people being killed. And it, uh, that, is a, uh, that is a sobering fact, uh, but it is uh, one that comes with the job. Who would sign up for that job? Does the president need to run these wars? Can they not cut and run? Is that the worst that can happen? If they back down, you're a quitter, you hate our troops, you want to cut and run? I'd rather be called those names than have my friends and family out there dying in the desert. The one thing I didn't lose sleep over was the possibility of taking Bin Laden out. Justice was done. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, anyone who would question that the perpetrator of mass murder on American soil uh, didn't deserve what he got uh, needs to have their head examined. Well, Mr. President, I need my head examined. I do think these wars have been horrible. I find it awful, apparently my new favourite word, awful, that they can now be seen as successful. Trillions of dollars, tens of thousands of lives, but we killed a man, and so this time, it's really mission accomplished. I enjoy the audio podcast version of Bill Maher's real-time show. I don't always agree with Maher. Sometimes, often, he's very funny, and I like that he's such a vocal atheist, but I didn't enjoy his comments from the last episode. Here are some of them. No secret why you're happy this week. <laughs> the madman's reign of violence and terror has ended. Charlie Sheen's comedy tour is over. And I can't... <laughs> no. Oh, and also we got Bin Laden. That was the other news. And I think all Americans are united in feeling that we owe people who live in caves an apology. <laughs> you guys got a bad rap, so... Nick Nolte, Gary Busey, Keisha, we're sorry. We... No, how about that, Obama? This was the most daring, efficient, audacious, successful special ops operation, I think, in the history of the United States military. Or... Or as Rush Limbaugh reported, Obama crashed a helicopter. <laughs> that was the worst that happened. I'm the nobody, American got hurt. We saved his kids. But yes, we did crash a helicopter. Well, of course, they had to fly in very low under the radar because Pakistan is very different. Over there, the air traffic controllers are awake. So... Now, I knew Americans said aluminium wrong, aluminum, instead of aluminium, but Mayer, or should I say Mir, says titanium wrong too. I mean, I read today that, the, the, <laughs> I don't know if this is true, but they say the Navy SEALs had attack dogs with titanium fangs, that they replaced their real teeth with titanium. You know you got a badass black president when even his dogs have a grill. Weren't people getting all upset about an android, typical, game about dogfighting, encouraging people to dogfight, and yet it's okay when the military does it? Is that a Michael Vick-style dig too, 
bling grills a black president? And if true, I think that's horrible, giving dogs metal teeth like some kind of James Bond villain? Surely that sounds over the top. It couldn't be true, right? I mean, it's not like the Americans would ever have $2 billion per unit stealth bombers or... You know, he's, he's repeatedly said to you know, his bodyguards and other people that he wanted to die. He didn't want to be taken prisoner. Uh, so <clears throat> that's what happened. I, mean, I don't buy that. I, be- I think he died like this. Please don't kill me. Sorry, we don't speak Arabic. <laughs> yeah. Really? I, I, uh, I think he's a big pussy. I really do. I hate hearing the guests laugh on that one. We're up here. And the reality is, is that Obama has been mistreated. Obama has been seen as the ultimate other. And the only way he's included in the larger circle of American privilege and democracy and identity is that he kills the Muslim. And now we may let him in the back door. Why couldn't he be an American when he graduated from Harvard? Why couldn't he be an American when he was the smartest guy in the room? Why couldn't he be an American when he was putting forth policies that had the, had the potential right. to well, change America? Uh, Why is this, it only this, killing this the Muslim? Beginning, the, the, okay. the question started are we going to begrudge him credit? And yeah. you end up begrudging him his credit by saying that killing no. bin Laden is not an okay. important accomplishment. It's the biggest thing. No, I'm thing saying that's right. not what makes him most American. Okay. I'm saying that is not what defines him. Okay, her. with the speechifying. You, you heard. Let's <laughs> You heard. You know, when I talked to people who lost loved ones on 9-11 in, um, in New York mm-hmm. after this, they were not acting yeah, like frat arms. boys, right. jumping up and down on cars, chanting USA like right. it was some weird World Cup ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a somber time for reflection. Yes. And, you know, I, I thought of those people, and I thought of the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis that were killed in, in, in that, that horrendous adventure that the Bush administration lost, uh, launched. And, and I also thought of the soldiers and civilians that have been killed in these wars. If anything, we should have taken that as a moment to reflect on what, where we go from here, rather than acting oh. like we just won the World Cup. Let me ask that question, because it's a valid question, although it will su- upset some people. And the question is, could it be that bin Laden won? Because when you add up not just the number of deaths, which of course is horrific Mm. but the money because he was all about the money he said we want to bankrupt this the western world and the united states well almost mission accomplished i mean you look at his career stats joseph stiglitz says three trillion for the iraq war right uh we were 5.6 trillion in debt in the year 2000 that includes from the beginning of the republic fighting indians pirates the british Mexicans, Germans, Japanese, Iraqis, Vietnamese, Koreans, all in. Now it's closer to 14 trillion. I saw today in the paper that one of his plans for the future, bin Laden's plans that was on his computer, was to take out a, you know, a train and a bridge and, well, you know what, uh, our bridges are falling down anyway. <laughs> you don't have to take them down. I don't want to think of war as something that's won or lost. I think we always lose. We always lose lives through violence. Whether it's violence against people who have wronged us, who have killed our country men and city women, or violence against other animals, I don't want to be part of it. To hear the leader of a country talking about killing people is just part of the job. It really is sick. Here's an end of show clip from No Agenda I found sobering about the end of World War II. And I happened to hear a show called Command Performance, which was a rebroadcast of an old radio show. And the episode I heard was uh, aired on VJ Day, the day we won World War II. And Bing Crosby was the host of the show, and all the big stars were on it, Bob Hope and Marlene Dietrich. He got out there and he said, we've just learned we won World War II. 
But I guess we're not proud. We just feel humble. We're just glad we got through it. And Burgess Meredith got out there and read a passage from Ernie Pyle, the great war correspondent. And Pyle wrote, we won this war because we have brave soldiers. We have great allies. We happen to have a lot of material abundance in this country. We didn't win it because we're God's chosen people. We didn't win it because we're anything special. We should just be glad and be worthy of the peace. And that tone of humility was so striking to me on the day they won World War II. Then I get home and I turn on TV, I'm watching football, and a cornerback tackles a wide receiver after a two-yard gain and does this victory dance to himself for his great achievement. Uh, And it occurred to me I I had just seen greater self-puffery after a two-yard gain than winning World War II. And I do think this is a a change from a culture of self-effacement, nobody's better than me, I'm no better than anybody else, to a culture of self-celebration. Look at me, I'm pretty damn good. And the polling data used to support this is my favorite one is that the Gallup asked high school seniors in 1950, are you a very important person? And 12% said yes. Uh, In 2005, they asked again, are you a very important person? And it wasn't 12%, it was 80%. And so that's just the change. And if you look at our math scores, we're 36th in the world in math performance, but we're number one in the world in thinking we're really good at math. Uh, And so that's a change. I wish it could have been more like that. Osama is dead. No one would celebrate and cheer. Peter wouldn't have made chocolates in the shape of his head to be sold or delivered free to American soldiers. Why they did that, I don't know. Apparently there was some explanation that he allowed dogs to be killed in weapons tests or something, and so that's why an animal rights group had to get involved with celebrating the death of someone. I don't think we should celebrate anyone being killed, regardless of what they've done. That we could realise that, huh, yeah, good dog, y'all, war is good for absolutely nothing. And when a president has given a peace prize, has spoken about ending wars and prisons overseas on day one when he comes to power, he should stick to his word, he should stand up for that non-violence. I'd like to include one more clip from a former New Zealand Prime Minister, David Longy, who spoke out against nuclear weapons. This is from the mid-80s. New Zealand is a nuclear-free zone. We don't want anything to do with the technology, and we were being pressured by many larger countries to adopt nuclear arms. Well, we couldn't play rugby with those, or hug our children, or chicken friends with nuclear arms. What good were they to New Zealand? The full speech is about 30 minutes long, and I've linked to it. I have a couple of minutes to include here, the funniest moments, when our leader spoke out against these weapons, and our whole country was behind him, standing up against America, Great Britain, perhaps much of the world, because we believed it was the right thing to do. I like the American guy, you're not taking up the burden of having nukes everywhere, of having bomb shelters, of teaching kids to duck and cover, and living in peaceful shadow of the bomb. That sounds terrifying. Mr. Longy, sir, if I may address you as as mate, perhaps. Um. What a crappy little joke, mate. This is our bloody prime minister he's talking to. Our version of a president. Would we ask an American president, I was going to say prime minister, a president, if we could call him Yank? Anyway, I'm just thin-skinned about this. An insignificant dig at my country during one of our greatest moments. Don't worry, old Davy Longy Legs gets even bigger laughs with a line known by every New Zealander. You've been talking about the quality of rationality. Now, I've heard many reasons advanced for keeping American sailors out of ports usually have something to do with the honor of the women involved or the property values of the ports. 
What I should like to know, sir, is why you don't do the honorable and the consistent thing and pull out of the ANZUS alliance. For whether you are snuggling up to the bomb or living in the peaceful shadow of the bomb, New Zealand benefits, sir. And that's the question with which we charge you. And that's the question with which we would like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath just for a moment. <laughs> I can smell the uranium on it as you lean towards the <laughs> pass over here the preparations which are constantly being made for the winnable or even survivable nuclear war. I would ignore those and wholeheartedly embrace the logic of the unthinkable war if it could be established that the damage which could result from the collapse of that logic would be confined to nuclear weapon states. Unfortunately and demonstrably it would not. We in New Zealand, you know, used to be able to relax a bit, to be able to think that we would sit comfortably while the rest of the world, seared, singed, withered, were enraptured. And the fact is that we used to have this vision of our being some kind of, a, of an antipodean Noah's Ark, which would, trouble in its quite isolated preserves, spawn a whole new world of realistic humankind. <laughs> Now, the fact is that we know that that is not achievable. We know that if the nuclear winter comes, we freeze, we join the rest of you. And that means that there is now a total denouement as far as any argument in favour of moral purpose goes. It is a strange, dubious and totally unaccepted moral purpose which holds the whole of the world to ransom. We refuse it and we specifically say, we do not want to be defended by nuclear weapons because, because we by that avoid the risk of escalating our area into a nuclear zone. I'm going to say, um, don't you feel that, you're, that you should weigh your moral stance with the pernicious effects that it will have not only on Asian security, but Western security as a whole. Particularly on the fact that there are movements in Japan, Australia, and NATO itself that would like to pull out and use your precedent as an example and pull out of their responsibilities to the alliance. And I, for one, as an American, do not feel that we should shoulder the defense of the Western world. And I think it's something that everybody should contribute to, and you, sir, are not doing your part. Well, I tell you, this country, this country, New Zealand, is not going to contribute to a nuclear alliance. This country, New Zealand, never has. New Zealand was declared by the former government to be no part of a nuclear alliance, and we will pick up the tab by conventional defense. And in my country, we pay our tab. We are not creating a policy for imitation or export. We can't even deport it to Australia. It's, it's 1,200 miles away. And if you think that Belgium and Holland and Greece developed a certain posture and undercurrent a surge because of the New Zealand position, you do us a considerable flattery about our omnipotence because, you know, we didn't know they were thinking about it. And we are no threat to that.
Prime Minister Longy was not against violence or other weapons. He was against what would now be called weapons of mass destruction. He didn't want our country to be burdened with them because they made us a target to other nations who were against the West. It was one of my country's greatest moments, right up there with being the first nation to give all citizens, including those women that I've heard about, the right to vote, the right to be heard, the right to matter. Real life isn't like the movies. We're not the hero, out to kill the lead vampire or werewolf, so all the victims magically transform back into healthy people once they're dead. Surely, if trillions of dollars were spent on these wars, tens of thousands killed, we were engaged in them regardless of cost or life, couldn't Osama have been taken alive? Could they have not thrown in tear gas, tased him, used maced? That's what we call pepper spray in New Zealand used a tranquilizer gun, or something. It's good enough to use against US citizens who protest. Why not use non-lethal capture methods to get public enemy number one? When you're a superpower, when you're far superior strength, why not take the moral high ground? Again, from The Hobbit. And smell. He seemed to be crouched right down with his flat hands splayed on the floor, and his head thrust out, nose almost to the stone. Though he was only a black shadow in the gleam of his own eyes, Bilbo could see or feel that he was tense as a bowstring, gathered for a spring. Bilbo almost stopped breathing and went stiff himself. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him, or tried to yet. And he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror, welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless unmarked days without light or hope of betterment, hardstone, coldfish, sneaking and whispering, all these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. He trembled, and then quite suddenly, in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolve, he leapt. No great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head he jumped, seven feet forward and three in the air. Indeed, had he known it, he only just missed cracking his skull on the low arch of the passage. Gollum threw himself backwards and grabbed as the hobbit flew over him, but too late. His hands snapped on thin air, and Bilbo, falling fair on his sturdy feet, sped off down the new tunnel. What's the worst Osama could do if taken alive, kept in prison, cursed the Americas as his, we hates it forever? And in the end, we could have shown decency to our enemy, someone who hated us, who had hurt us. We could rise above it. We could take pity on this wretched creature who lived in caves, or mansions in Pakistan. 
Perhaps we could have changed the enemy's mind that the West was not the great Satan. We could have saved at least one life. I hope I haven't been too political this episode. I was trying to bring together different forms of violence, a sort of violence convention, where the different kinds get to know each other. And then we, peaceful folk, hit a button, and all the windows are barred and the doors lock, and the violence is trapped inside forever. I thought war and claiming victory after killing someone had a lot to do with killing 56 billion land animals each year, for our enjoyment. Of seven-year-olds saying they want to kill someone who'd stolen their junk food. One member, right-wing resistance groups, spreading hate, and of blaming Canada. I'm glad other podcasters have put out more episodes recently. It motivates me to get there out there in public and do more vegan activism, to work online too. Elizabeth Collins was so inspired by meeting a lifetime supply of vegans in a day, she's had two recent episodes. Barbara DeGrand has also put out another episode of Veganacious. I'm hoping more still will release podcasts soon. After an endless campaign of bullying, when's the next episode coming out, when's the next episode coming out, when's the next episode coming out, Roger Yates finally snapped and put out another on-human, non-human relations episode. And I even got to appear on it. So, who's my next target? How about Mr. Tim Geyer, whose name I always want to pronounce Geyer? Mr. Geyer had a pilot episode a while back. Understandably, those new show ideas can sometimes pop out and then never receive a sequel, a bit like some guy in a This Week in Vegan thing. Let's listen to some clips of Tim from his first, and so far, only episode. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Tim Geyer, and I write a blog about what it means to be a vegan, living in a world full of people who eat other animals. In today's podcast, I'll be asking... Who among us has the right to speak out about injustice? As always, you can find the complete text of every podcast at timgeyer.com. That's T-I-M-G-I-E-R.com. Nice intro, off to a good start. Sad music, could do with a pinch more Jackson 5, but a good start, a great start. There will never be a perfect world. Hmm, we'll see about that, when we all connect directly to the internet, through a port in our heads. Because that could never end up badly, right? When we're all matrix together. Or perfect beings in it either. Again, I disagree, Tim. There's three perfect beings in my backyard right now, flapping their pretty little wings. All things born are born to die. And we will all make a mark upon the world. No man is an island. Oh yeah, Tim? I know a Mr. Gaiman Sarfunkle who'd say otherwise, with every Shutton Recluse's favourite anthem. Hiding in my room. Ah, that 1960s music, right? They were probably having a bad trip and wanted to lock themselves in a room to stop the screaming banshees. For example, I live in the United States. Without my express permission, and in spite of my actual wishes to the contrary, my government commits human rights abuses all across the world, while it violates the civil rights of its own citizens on their soil. Must I renounce my country and my citizenship 
and forego all the benefits of living here? Yes, hell yes. You know, your government suppressing your rights when Barbara DeGrand, a non-violent vegan activist living in Texas, the blinking Lone Star State, renegades, mavericks, people who don't take no guff from them government office boys. Well, she's not allowed to give away home-baked vegan goods to people as a sort of vegan activism. Hey, veganism is easy and it tastes great. When Elizabeth Collins, living in a socialist country, is in having hospitals and stuff, she can. What's going on, dude? If I must, then where am I supposed to go? I don't know, not sure on that one. Not Australia, but somewhere close. Uh, how about New Zealand? Ignore the fringe political parties popping up, and that one racist guy pretending to have a giant organisation behind him while he pushes a social agenda. We're great here. We'll even wait until you arrive, before telling you about the three hours of gravity per day, government rationed. Oh, and that 20 gigabytes a month of broadband, 10 kilobytes a second, before you get that amazing speed further reduced. Is it a crazy, pipe-weed dream to imagine a whole bunch of vegans moving to some little island nation at the bottom of the world? I don't think so. Perhaps it's a generational thing. When I first started getting interest in veganism, you know, back in the day, and promoting it to non-vegans, my more conservative father mentioned, you can't change the world. He was a freezing worker for a decade. He worked in a slaughterhouse. He is not vegan. I'd expect that kind of attitude, though. Just think of the music he must have grown up with. I mean, this guy was considered a musical genius back then, an inspiration for a whole generation. There's a choice for me. Dylan Bob just mangled that wonderful song of Mr. Jackson's. If that was the great poet, the great inspiration of his formative years, no wonder he sees real change as delusional. Who'd want to be like that guy? Some of us grew through different times. With positive sounding music, not just written by, but performed by Mr. Jackson. Music about looking in a mirror, being kind to mice, counting numbers, remembering the alphabet. Blaming it on a boogie, whatever that was, either the things in your nose or some musical style from the 70s, same thing really. Like I tell the farmers, the naysayers, the non-believers, we are here to change the world, so just surrender, cause the power's deep inside my soul, sang it, we are here to change the world. Immortal words from the world's greatest 3D movie. Actually, more like 4D. It had smoke machines and lasers in the theatre. Captain EO, starring a young Michael Jackson, literally walking on a moon, well, in the movie setting, and saving evil alien queens and her whip warriors through the power of positive thinking and funky, synth-driven music. Oh, and with help from his little Muppet robot thing friends. If one guy and a few non-human friends can transform aliens into backup dancers in a movie, I see no reason why this young vegan couldn't successfully promote veganism with the inspiration and gold standard example of his chicken friends. For full inspiration, you can find the full short movie, Captain EO, on YouTube. I'll link to it in the show notes. It costs nearly $2 million a minute, and that's in 1986 US dollars too, but it's worth every penny. And, uh, 
there's quite a lot of pennies involved in a 17-minute movie costing about 30 million bucks. And there's another song that comes to mind too. The True, original, recorded the night before demo with piano by one of his brothers, as it should be. Keeping it in the family. No Bob Dylan trying to ruin a more talented artist's career. A little, we are the world. And we are. Change the world? We're within the world. If we change, so does a part of it. Sure, if one person changes their actions towards others, that's one out of seven billion odd, but a change nonetheless. And, if a right-wing resistance can get all one of its members in the mainstream news, why can't we be just as effective at working on positive change? We're part of this world. We're working to make it a better place for you and for me and for the entire human race, as well as all other animals, of course. There are many groups throughout the world working on the same goal of a vegan world, of promoting veganism. The Little Invercargill Vegan Society, the Auckland Abolitionist Vegans Association, Animal Rights and Rescue of North Texas, the Boston Vegan Association, Vegan Ireland, Animal Equality, we're all in this together. And we know what we're working for. It's the same thing that keeps us together. That's right, make it funky on those wood veneer covered organs. Even greater than that crazy song are the two I'll include after the outro clip. We are here to change the world from Captain EO and the demo, Michael Jackson with one of his brothers on piano of We Are The World. Never forget who you are, someone trying to make the world a better place. Never forget who we are, a large group of vegan friends throughout the world, gaining momentum and really making a positive impact on the world, of which we are all a small part. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode, as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.co.nz. If you want to contact me, even just to say you've listened, send an email to jaywontdart at gmail.com, J-A-Y-W-O-N-T-D-A-R-T at gmail.com, or on Twitter and the more popular Facebook, Jordan Wyatt. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Away from the notion of animals as things, and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy. It's better for you. It's certainly better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.
there's a time when we should heed a certain cause. Cause the world, it seems, is right in this line. Cause there's a chance for taking in needing our own lives. It seems we need nothing at all. I used to feel that I should give away my heart, and it shows that we are needing them. Then I read the headlines, and it said they're dying there, and it shows that we. We will call. 